I grew up in a seaside town with my three brothers and there's only 18 months between each of us um, with the age group so we were very close growing up and we're still very close now. Um, my parents were first generation um, Irish immigrants so they were very hard working and even though they were Irish they were actually devout, uh, devout atheists. And because they were so busy with work and so often very stressed and trying to keep four boys in line, discipline was a big part of our life. And I was also grappling with a lot of issues myself with my own sexuality at that age. So with the discipline and my own issues, that anxiety really manifested itself. And then once I left to go to university, the anxiety really exacerbated and it developed into an, an eating disorder where I would be exercising excessively every day to the point of um, where I'd pass out. And then as I went through the university and eventually left university, I'd learned to self-medicate this anxiety with often alcohol. So I'd be going out and I would drink um, and that would help to control that anxiety. And this is what ultimately led to my, my near-death experience, which had happened now 16 years ago. I was 27 years old and my best friend had died about six months prior to this. And he had a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of the brain and he died with about three weeks of getting his diagnosis. So it was a very traumatic time. He was like somebody who really understood me and we, we got on so well. And I was working as a clinician on a paediatric ward. But it was a very tricky time at work in that we had three children that died unexpectedly. So anybody who had died since my best friend had died, I found it really difficult. And again, going back to my self-medication um, and my, def my defence mechanism of coping with this would be to, to resort to alcohol. So I'd arranged a night out with my friends to a local bar, very unpretentious, relaxed place where you have a few drinks and the more drunk you get, you migrate to the back of this venue where they've got the club area. Um, and this is where we ended up getting a really nice seated area on the left-hand side. And a friend of mine went to go and get a, drink, a round of drinks. And it's at this point that my friend offered me a very powerful painkiller anesthetic that you can take and again, it helps with anxiety. But you should never mix this with alcohol. And I knew this, but I still took some of this very powerful anesthetic. But as I inhaled this, I knew instantly something wasn't right. My peripheral fission started to darken and I knew my blood pressure was dropping and I collapsed very quickly. And now I wasn't aware of this because I was already passed out, but my friends had said that I quickly went into respiratory failure. You develop a very distinctive sound called a strider. And it's just basically your body trying to get the air into your lungs. And you've got your sternocleidomastoid ligaments here that were just putting my chest up and trying to get the oxygen in. But I was making like it's a sea line noise to get the air in. Now, I was totally unaware of all of this because I was instantly transported to a, another realm. I was suspended within this huge coliseum and I was actually suspended in the air in between these two massive columns but the columns went you know miles and miles from either side and the coliseum was behind me. There were stairs like a thousand stairs that were coming up to this coliseum and the coliseum was made of this brilliant light that I would explain. But the most important part of this suspended in the air was I had this incredible presence on my, my right hand side. Now I had no physical form at this time. I can only assume that I was this beam of energy that I felt a part of this greater light. Now the energy that I had here on my right hand side was very 
overpowering, very comforting. And I had no idea what that feel was. If I didn't have 360 degree perception, I would have just assumed that I was against one of these huge columns that I was in between. But there was nothing behind me. So I don't know if it was my higher self, a spirit guide, or, or you know, part of your soul family. Now, going back to the light, that the, the brilliant light there, the only way that I've learned to explain it is when you're in a science class and you, you have a prism and you talk about refraction, the light shines through this prism. So you have the beam of light and you have the, the rainbow that, that, that manifests within it. And it's that incredible mixture of this beautiful white light with colour within it. And that is what I could see, but it was a very intense bright light that just absorbs you, but isn't uncomfortable to be around. I would call that the universe or God. I really think it was so immense. And that was what emitting that feeling of peace and comfort. And when you explain about the, the Colosseum that was there, which was made of light, but the light, is, it's going to, it's so difficult to explain. It's frustrating. But if you think about on the earthly realm, there's the infrared and ultraviolet light, but we can just see a tiny fraction of that. And then in this realm, it must have just exploded that I had that full range. And another way that I've explained it before is a pearl within an oyster. It's that beautiful white colour, but you can see that pink and purple within it. But just imagine going to that full spectrum of infrared and ultraviolet. It's just a magnificent colour that is just, it's comforting. It's almost like a liquid. You're in like in this water-filled flow of comfortness. And it's the peace and the love and that unconditional love. People say it's like going home. Now, I was greeted by these four magnificent beams of energy um, that were, I'm going to say in front of me, but, you know, the perception was all around me. I knew instantly who they were. There was no physical features, but just either from their vibration or just from their frequency, I knew who they were. The first three beams were children who died on the ward over those coming weeks. So two of them were infants and one was a three-year-old girl. The communication there was way beyond telepathy. It was just this knowing and understanding everything about them. There was no dialogue at all. I'd love to say that we had this, this conversation, but it really wasn't about that. It was just about their greater journey. And I had a greater understanding of what their life journey or their soul journey it was very little reference to the, their time on Earth. And I still believe they were there to let me know that I was, it was okay to let go and that it was okay to move on. That was a message that I did feel was important because, you know, why would they bother coming to greet me when I had such a small part of my life on the ward? Now, the fourth beam of energy was my best friend who had passed away six months before. And the communication was, with him was slightly different. Again, he was no physical form, but I was able to, I just knew it was him just from whatever the frequency was. Because we did have that connection on Earth, the connection with him was slightly different and it did feel different. I remember having a specific thought, because he was an atheist, that he was actually hearing this incredible, magnificent beam of energy. Now, beyond these four beams of energy that were in front of me, there were still thousands and thousands of these beams of magnificent energies. And it's so difficult to explain because they were huge. If you think about the cedar trees that you have in Yosemite, these massive trees, they were just magnificent and just vibrating in a way that you get this connectedness around them. 
And it's so real because it, I like I said, this was 16 years ago. And you, you will have vivid dreams sometimes, but to, to remember this in the detail that I had and the fact that I was obsessed with this place for months afterwards, I just could not get out of my head this incredible realm. But it's obviously, it's not, it's not what people say, it's how they make you feel. And that's what, what I felt up there is what made it so special. Now behind me as well, there were also these beams within the Colosseum. And again, this is very difficult to explain, but we were all just connected by this, it's like almost like a thread of light or love that everything was connected within this realm. And then my best friend took me back to our last memory together on earth. And I was very fortunate that I was in the hospital bedroom when he died. And it's an absolute privilege because often, it's such an intimate thing that people will die once there's nobody in the room. You know, you could be there for weeks waiting for the person to die. And as soon as you go off to the bathroom or to go and get a cup of tea, the person will die. But he definitely wasn't ready to go. I remember having a conversation with him because we had the three weeks leading up to death. And he was trying to get this for his radiotherapy, he was getting a mask fitted on his brain so they can do the radiotherapy. They didn't even have time to fit that before he died. But he, was, he wasn't ready to die at all. He really wanted, he had a fantastic career and he wanted to stay here, which I totally understood. So when I was in that room, I was furious that he died. I was shouting up to the corner of the room saying, please just show me that you're okay. But Brendan had showed me this from his perception so I was looking down at myself, talking up to the corner of the room, saying, please just show me that you're okay. But I could feel all of my emotions at that time, but I could also feel his emotions from his perception. He literally just died, so I had the feelings that he had just left his body and he was at peace instantly and ready to, to, to move on at that time. So you hear about these shared death experiences and I think that's what I had but it was almost from a retrospective point of view so it's, it's very extraordinary and confusing but it was a very vivid memory that I was shown whilst I was up in that realm and I'm narrating this in a way that it was in a chronological order but it wasn't everything was just in one go because there's, there's just no time up there and that's why it's this overload of information that you think must take an eternity for the information that I gained. And it was literally, you know, minutes or seconds that I was potentially there for. And because I had this perception of me, I was then very aware that, well, was I dead? And I, it didn't bother me at all that I was dead. And I had the realisation that, well, how did I die? Did I die in, in the club? And you don't have any feeling of guilt or shame. I remember thinking this wasn't ideal. And that's when I had the thought of my family and particularly of my parents. And I actually remember seeing my parents asleep in bed and having this vision of them. And it was that thought that catapulted me back to this earthly realm. Now, when I went to this realm, it was a flick of a switch. It was in an instant. But coming back, I remember coming through the club area and actually coming through the bar area. So my consciousness actually came through the bar in the club and I went through as a wooden bar. I remember seeing in the greatest detail the splinters that are in that wood and even get a sense of what that wood used to be, what, which was a, a tree, and I had all of that feeling. Now, when I got back into the club, there was no sound, and I was very aware that my body was on the floor, but I couldn't see my body as, as in the physical form. Now, it's, it's difficult to explain, but I was aware that my consciousness would not get into that body form. My consciousness was immense, it was huge at this time, and it was just no way it was gonna get back into this tiny body. 
this was the most traumatic part of the whole experience because literally seconds ago, I was in this magnificent realm, fully aware that I was dead, but didn't care at all. But now I was on this earthly realm, I was petrified. And I remember it vividly, and I, even now, this is 16 years ago, having that innate fear of not being able to get my consciousness into the, my body. And my human body didn't look like this from when I was from my consciousness. It looked even more insignificant. It looked like nothing because at that time, I can only assume that I must have hopefully looked like what my best friend and the children looked like with these magnificent beams of energy. And I hope that's what I was, but I didn't have that. I couldn't see what I actually looked like. So you can just imagine how magnificent you are at that time. And then even just to see my body, it just looked so useless. I thought, how am I going to get this into that body? Now, my consciousness was literally undulating back and forth, back into the bar area, into the wood. So I could see that wood again in the greatest detail. And all that scum that accumulates around a bar area, I could see it in the greatest detail. And it's just like waving back and forth. Now, I don't know how my consciousness got back into my body, whether it was through will or intentions, but my consciousness did get back in. And it almost made like a, a tangible popper sound that, you know, because it's this immense consciousness that had to get back into this, what looked like it, like a minuscule, insignificant body. But it did get into it. And that's when all of my senses were just totally overwhelmed because I could then hear all the music from the club came on. Um, my face was sore because my friends were slapping my face to try to rouse me. There was security around me. My friends were around me. And I literally just sat up and I said, I've seen Brendan. I've just seen Brendan. And everyone knew Brendan had died months before. So it just looked absolutely crazy. Another traumatic part of this was coming back. It's almost like a post-traumatic distress syndrome was the time period that I was gone. I was literally out for maybe five to ten minutes but I thought I must have been gone for like a wonderful eternity if not at least three weeks. There was so much information that I was understood and gained. The fact that I was still in this club it just didn't make any sense to me and and I really grappled with that for a long time to understand the absence of time. And I was absolutely obsessed with this experience for months to come. I could not stop thinking about it. I was desperate to get back there. I remember vividly sat on my bed thinking, how can I get back there? I really just want to go back to this place. And I was thinking about all the ways that I could potentially do that. But I knew the return journey was so traumatic. I didn't want to have that experience again. But very fortunately for me, I did get some incredible after effects very quickly after coming back. So within the first week of this happening, I met some friends for coffee in the bar that I used to work in, where I met my best friend. And we sat around the table and my mobile phone started to ring and it had Brendan's name that came up on it, which I thought was very strange because he hadn't used his phone a month before he died because he had a brain tumour. And then nobody had used his phone that, that six months afterwards. I was with three other friends and I just said, look, it's Brendan's phone. It must be his partner calling. So I opened the phone and it was absolute silence. There was nothing there. And I knew that was a connection. That was a, new, a validation of what I experienced really was, was real. And I must have kept the phone open for like five, ten minutes. I didn't want to close that connection. It was just such a wonderful validation of what had happened. And then I did close the phone and I text his partner saying, have you given Brendan's phone out to somebody or have you used it, which would be a weird thing to do. And he said, no, the phone has been in the bottom drawer at home. No one's touched it. There's no battery in it. So that for me was a fantastic validation. And other validations since the telephone call 
was orb actions. For my birthdays and for videos, I've always caught these incredible orbs of Brendan. And a previous interview I did with Jeff Mara, that got some incredible orb actions from that, where there's an orb that splits into two, then comes back together, and what a huge flashing light that comes through the right, right hand side. And then the following week after that, I was at a friend's house and I was sat there having dinner and I saw a full apparition of a man walking through my friend's hallway into his bathroom. And it's classic. Everyone says, why do you always see people dressed in Victorian clothes and not in, you know, someone in their 90s? But this man had a top hat on, blonde hair, six foot, full attire and saw him walk through. I jumped up from the, the table and said, Steve, someone's in your flat, I ran to the hallway. And there was nobody there. And I just knew then I'd just seen a ghost, which again was such a privilege to experience seeing something that vivid. It just stays with you because it was such a special memory, but also you were scared at the time. Now, Steve's partner who lived in that flat was in his front room before. And he, there's a mirror that looks onto that hallway. And his partner had said previously that he'd seen someone walk through there. So again, that was a good validation for me that I'd seen that. And a similar time in Steve's flat, maybe a couple of weeks afterwards, I was walking from his kitchen into the, his front room just with a cup of tea and I was transported out of that time to a, another period of time. Now in, in London they make, your, make the flats much smaller than they used to be. So he lives in a Victorian apartment but I saw the, all the flats as it, as it previously used to be. So all his walls were gone. He only just has two sash windows but I could see four sash windows. They were all smashed in and there were le old leaves just blowing around his, this room. And then I was literally back into his flat again. And I just couldn't explain how I'd transported back in time. I can only assume that the man that I'd seen that was dead, it must relate to something to do with, with that time period. But what it was, I don't know. And the overarching side effect that I've had is the compassion and connectedness that I have now, which I never really had, even with the job that I did. And to the point that, you know, if I hear people talking about somebody else in a derogatory way, it's such a painful experience for me that I often have to take myself out of that situation because I just, that connectedness that I felt up in that incredible realm. I can often see the empathy and compassion within the situations or within people. And it helps with my career because a, a large children's hospital, we see death literally every day. And you don't always build up connection with these families because they will just come in for support and, and then they will, will, will die, sadly. But I 100% know where their energies are going to, but I can never say to the parents, you know, this is, it doesn't matter if they're religious or not. Religion really helps families. Having that belief does help them with the passing compared to those families that are atheists when they struggle a lot more. So I think religion definitely has a role here. And I was saying before, I was born and bred an atheist 100%. And then since this experience, there's no way that I'm, I can't be spiritual. And it, death does not bother me at all. I think we all worry about how we might die. But if we all knew that we were the sun, which was the source of energy, why would we get up to go to work every day? Why would we have that breakfast every day? It'd be so difficult to stay here. So... You go through that fail because you get that different emotion. Before I was dead, didn't care at all. I was in the most wonderful place, happy to stay. Didn't think about anything for my earthly life. Then second you come through that fail, you have all your human emotions that keep you here. And you have to stay on this earthly plane to live out whatever your life pre-journey was or your soul journey. It's a very controversial area, but it makes sense that, that you have that distinction between the two realms. 
So I've spoken to my friends about this because especially after it happened and I'm still friends with many people that knew that I went through that experience. Talking to colleagues is very difficult. And I worked in a hospital center for 20 years now. But no, it's a very difficult topic to talk to because people just just shut you down. It's like, you know, they don't believe in it, which is fun. I'm, I'm not here to, to prove to anyone I've had the most wonderful experience, which was so profound. It's changed every aspect of my life since then. So two unexpected outcomes that have come from me going public with my NDE, which was a year ago. One was parents that have contacted me saying thank you for giving them some comfort, who, these parents who had lost children. And this is something that I had never thought of doing because even just going public with this, it's, you know, with my professional background, it, it was it's a big risk. And just to have these, and a number of families contacted me to say thank you that I've given them comfort, which was wonderful. The loss of a child is the absolute worst and just to have some comfort from my story, I just never expected it. The second outcome from going public was that I was contacted by a researcher from a North of England university who wanted to do research in NDEs in children. So children that have had a very traumatic experience like cardiac arrest, suicide attempts, and I'm always keen to try to find out what the experience they've had. But it's very difficult to have that conversation when the family, the parents are there. And even from that religious connotation as well, like speaking about what they might have experienced, it, it makes it very difficult. That's why getting the research through, we have that option then to have a set number of questions to go through for each patient and see if we can prompt them to try and listen to some of their experiences. So this colleague who contacted me has fantastic skills in what we call participatory research methods. So she's great at doing small world play, creative art, to get them to try to describe what um, experience they've had. So we've had a few children that we have managed to do some what we call patient and public involvement to get the idea to develop our project. Um, we had one very interesting adolescent girl who had a very interesting experience and how she described that she wanted to leave her body. And we're just in the process of getting this research proposal through ethics. We actually have the ethics meeting in a couple of weeks, which we're looking at a greater picture of post-intensive care syndrome. But within this, we're going to be looking at children's near-death experience, which will be incredible to collect some of that data and publish on children's experience. Because that's when it's at its purest as well, to know that it's not being tampered with. Children find it more normal, the experience that they have, than we might do as adults. So they may not try to justify it as much as adults would do because we're so far removed from those experiences whereas children would just take it and expect that it, it's normal. And they tend to see, again in the literature, they would tend to see deceased loved ones like the grandparents. Um, and it's just often ignored by the, by the physicians and family that it's just, you know, they were on intensive care with lots of medication. The medical training is that we talk about cellular biology and even now they're talking about end of life. There was a very recently it was published that they actually a person was having an MRI scan and unfortunately they died while they're having an MRI scan, but they captured some incredible data about what the brain does and how it just shoots off all of these incredible electrical impulses because when we die, you have this burst of electric energy, which is absolutely funny. That is the case when you die. Brilliant. But I think just the, the profound experience it had on my life and just opened up so much and just that feeling, and, you know, to see my dead friend, it, it just didn't make sense that I, th I think there's a lot more to it. I think the medical world is definitely opening up to it now because people are talking about it much more and, there's, and you know, people in the medical profession are talking about it and that helps. But, it, you know, 
it's always going to be a, a stigma related to any experience because it's your own experience and you can't ever prove it. But I think it's getting better. And even the research that I'm doing now, hopefully we can get that published and you know, present at medical conferences about this experience because whether it's real or not, children are having experience or we're having experiences and it needs to be addressed and you know, controlled the information that you've received. It's a really good question and I've never had depression. I'm very lucky. I've always suffered from anxiety but then since I had my experience, my anxiety massively reduced because I just didn't stress about life so much. But depression, you know, it causes suicide and to, to get to that point, it crosses over. And, you know, in the paediatric world, this year we've had eight attempted suicides for adolescents. So we've never seen anything like this ever. But I think people that have depression, you know, this is a disease where people are living in the past, whereas anxiety is a modern disease where you're living in the future, whereas you can just live in the now. That can really help with those feelings because we're all here to learn lessons. But for somebody who's grappling with depression and, you know, they want to end their life, I totally understand what you're saying. You can, you know, why do they not want to get to this amazing place? Um, and have that but I, you know, I absolutely wouldn't recommend I think if we can just take life less seriously and if, if there's certain things in life that are making you depressed and you can change it of course if you've got five children a single parent and you've got no money life can be horrendous but if you are in a position to change your job to change where you live then do it because that could change what that depression is but then you know depression might be chemical issue there's some fantastic work going on at Imperial University at the moment where they're looking at psilocybin so these people that had chronic depression and they're suicidal, they've been signed up for this new drug that changes their whole outlook on their life. So I think this psilocybin is going to be a really exciting new drug that might be able to help people see the greater picture. I'm not sure if you've heard about psilocybin. It's the, it's the component of magic mushrooms, but they're now using it in medical treatment for depression and people that have addiction issues. So Imperial University are pioneering the way for this at the moment. And going into some of these life lessons that I've now lived by because of this experience, one is my intentions. I think if we were all much more aware of our intentions and the power of our actual thoughts, we would be much more careful about what we did with our, our thinking. And I totally believe in like what we sow is what we reap. So if you can think positively and give out positive energy, that does come back and it is a really important part of our lives. So but just to be aware of your intentions, what your true intention is, and then trying to be non-judgment is another life lesson that I'm trying to lead on from this, which is easier for me to do because of the connectedness that I had. Trying to see why people are behaving in a, in a particular way, to think about what actually happened to them or to their parents for them to be a particular way. And just to be kind, often people have these near-death experiences and they think they have to have this life-changing career where they go into Reiki medicine or they go into healing, which is fantastic. But I think all you really need to do is to be kind. There's this great quote, you know, in a world where you can be anything, just be kind. All you have to do every day is be kind. And that's what I just find now with the job. Even coming back, I didn't have this great message saying that you, your job's not done yet. You have to do what you need to do. I really just feel that you just, you know, you smile into somebody on the street or if someone smiles to you, it can make a huge impact on your day. And knowing 
that life is just a game and we are here just to experience as many human emotions as possible, good and bad, so we can grow emotionally and our souls can grow. I take much more risk, like not physical risks, but I take those big risks in career or in life or going on holidays and doing these really fun stuff because it's worth taking the risk. What's the worst that can happen? So if you've got the option to apply for a job, to ask somebody out on a date, just do it because life is just a game and just to enjoy it as much as you can. And if you can be grateful, have a gratitude diary because I was ill coming back from a holiday a couple of weeks ago and it wasn't then till I was really ill that I realised how important it is just having your health and having the physical health to go out and get into nature. So nature for me and where I live in the countryside now, it's a way that I connect to that higher level very quickly. And we all have a very busy mind and by shutting down that mind, going to what I call walking meditation and I get out as much as I can. So I think that's quite a nice bit for me for take home message is that walking meditation to shut the brain down, which is so hard for people to do because often it's very negative narrative that goes on in people's minds. And to close that down, it's a real skill. And I can connect very quickly by listening just to the birds, to the leaves in the tree, and I get to that higher, higher consciousness where I can connect again to that beautiful source of energy and then just not taking life seriously at, at all. So these are the, the lessons that I really try to live by as much as I can. But a negative side effect that did come from this, which is very frustrating, was I had to stop eating meat, literally. And I'm from an Irish family where meat is so important. But because I'd seen this connectedness, I wasn't able to disconnect with cats and dogs. And people would eat cats and dogs, you know, in, in India and in China, in the Far East. But we were here, we wouldn't be eating these types of animals. And I couldn't, I made the connection between pigs and cows, cats and dogs, and just had to stop eating meat. So I've been a vegetarian now for 16 years. That's the main after effects that I've had from then. So prior to my NDE, I was a devout atheist. My family were atheists. And then having this experience, I, it changed everything for me. And I had to believe in that greater energy, in that greater universe, which people will call God or can call universe, but it changed me to a very spiritual person. And I get so much strength knowing that we all have a soul family. So I definitely do pray and I, often, and I do believe in the power of prayer now, which I never, never would have in the past, um, just because of what I've experienced, that there's no way you can't understand how energy is connected now and the power that we have for our thoughts. And that's why you have to be so careful not to, when you know, we have an altercation with somebody, you think about the turmoil that you have for days or weeks afterwards because of that altercation. It's just not worth doing if you can have that a peaceful life as much as possible. So no, power of prayer, I 100% believe in now. 